Y'all grab a seat. We're going to do a baby dedication, but we're going to do it at the end, if that's okay. Is that okay with you guys? Um, I love baby dedications. Um, but I don't want to um, right now break this kind of this groove that we're in. So uh, y'all go ahead and turn to Luke 19. And uh, Luke 19, very familiar story. As you turn there, we're going to give. And so uh, I, I want to encourage um, you guys. You guys are so faithful. I'm going to talk about this in a minute because I don't talk about this enough. But uh, I want to encourage you guys uh, to not just give. We, we were talking about this, and I might mention this in a little bit. Uh, Jesus, when they go to the temple, there's a, most of you know this story. There is a uh, widow who gives uh, like two pennies in the offering. And, uh, and then there's other people. Let me get a little, a little adjusted. Uh, who are rich, and they give a ton of money in the offering. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, that widow that just gave two pennies gave more than everybody else. How? Jesus says, because she gave everything that she had. They gave what they could afford to live without. She gave what she could not afford to live without and inherited by that act a measure of living she did not have with those two pennies. So I want to encourage you as a church, where we're going, we, our giving is amazing if we're going to stay exactly where we are and we're not. For us to move into the things that I am 100% sure the Lord has for us, it is going to require you and me both giving at a measure that we have not been required to give yet. And yes, I'm right now talking about money. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know what that looks like for you, but I do want to challenge you. Um, one, let me challenge you in this. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you don't necessarily tithe consistently. Um, that's, that would be an amazing first step. That would be an amazing. Somebody asked me um, a few months ago, uh, "What is a tithe?" Um, it was somebody that didn't go to this church. It was somebody I was talking to out in, uh, I think it was a coffee shop or I was mailing something. I forget where. Anyway, we started talking about church and they were talking about tithing, and um, and so I said, "A tithe is ten percent of your gross income." For those of you that that don't know what gross means, that means before tax, before you give money to the government, you should probably give some to the Lord. Okay. So uh, if you want to do pre-tax or uh, post-tax, you do you, um, but uh, technically it's not 10%. But as a church, we're, we're be hopefully beyond what's the minimum I have to give. Yeah, right? Oh, y'all quiet? Man, we start talking about giving, y'all get quiet. That's fine with me. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What, like, like, bro, what's the minimum I have to give? If that's how we're still thinking, Lord, go back, the past, go back five years ago and start and listen to every message until this point and then come back and tell me what you think now, okay? Be, we're beyond that. What, what we're at the place now, we're asking, what quality of giving does the Lord want of me? Not what quantity. So it's not how little do I have to give, bam, there's 10%. It's what quality of my giving does the Lord want of me? You know what I mean? And most of us can afford to live without 10%. So it really doesn't require that much faith. So I want to challenge you. I want you to give 
And I want you to go higher and higher and higher until you get to the point where it says, I don't know if I can do that. That's about where you need to give. And I'm saying that from experience. I'm saying that as person number one who has done that. Okay? So, um, so anyway, <laughs> all that being said, and listen, you guys are, a lot, a lot of you are so consistent. Um, Y'all have no idea what consistency does for A, the church, but B, for the kingdom. Consistency is amazing. So I want to thank y'all for doing that. Um, but we're going to give now. So uh, we're, we'll pass this around. I know it's the 31st. Everybody gets paid tomorrow, but, you know, faith. So um, some of y'all probably got paid before. I don't know how your, how your business works, but maybe y'all got paid Friday. Um, anyway, we're going to give. Is anybody giving in the service uh, physically? Okay. Pass that around. Thank you, Tim. And then anybody else? Isaiah. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you. And uh, here, I'll just let you guys pass this around. Thank you so much. I just want to kind of pass it around down there. If you need to give, uh, toss, it in, toss it in the bucket, and then we will uh, uh, bless that towards the end as well. So thanks, Brandon. The man. All right, Luke 19, Luke 19. Before we get into that, I just want to read what I do, some stuff that I've been writing. I was up till about uh, 11 last night, um, a little bit later after that, and uh, writing this, so it's just fresh, fresh off the press. Um, so let me start, and then we'll get into Luke 19. Thank you, Tim. Uh, going in, so I just got back from sabbatical, if you didn't know, FYI. Going into sabbatical, I had no definite plans. I just wanted to rest um, and be led by the Spirit. i got to mute the rest of these mics because it's causing a little buzz, and that will drive me insane. Y'all give me one second. <clears throat> okay, you did? Thanks, Matt. Um, okay, sorry about that. Oh, lost me. If you press that little button, it's got the arrow. Um, okay, yeah. Going into sabbatical, I had no definite plans. I just wanted to rest and be led by the Spirit. I knew that there were some things the Lord needed to do in me, but what I really needed was time to recalibrate to the reason that I am here with you guys. Not that I had changed, but I had started to let rejection from people, and if I'm being honest, in apathetic hearts, I started letting those two things discourage me in what would have been an unhealthy way had I not taken time to, uh, to fix that. So we shut off the world, me, Jordan, and Veda, we shut off the world, and we got refocused, and, uh, and we also got COVID, so that was, that was, that was another thing. Um, but anyway, the devil's a liar. In this season, I'm just playing. We did have COVID, but in this season, I was led to read heavily the writings of the church fathers, early church fathers. Though I've spent many hours studying the teachings of Athanasius and spent some time on many others, I had never given myself the space to dive into how the early church thought. So I read and studied Origen, Athanasius, Irenaeus, Augustine, Polycarp, along with other later theologians such as, yes, Calvin and Karl Barth, my favorite. I studied the life of these great witnesses, some of which I disagree with, others which I have rekindled a fire in me again through. L let, me, let me mention this real quick about Calvin. Uh, I need to apologize to the dead Calvin. Um, uh, John Calvin and Calvinism are basically two completely different things, I've realized. 
And so I completely, number one, want to apologize if I have attached John Calvin personally to the movement of Calvinism, um, because I've realized that Luther is not like the Lutherans, that uh, Jonathan Wesley is not like the uh, Methodist, and that Calvin was really not like the Calvinists. So anyway, hopefully, pray to God, there's not a denomination one day called Brownism and uh, Lord, Um, (laughs) because it doesn't go too well. Anyway, and what I've realized in some of these guys is, um, is they're not too far off. John Calvin was a pastor in a time where this side rabbit, welcome back. Uh, John Calvin was a pastor in a time where the, his congregation was being heavily oppressed by the culture around them. And so a lot of his teachings, such as predestination, um, which he taught very different than how Calvinists teach it today. But anyway, um, uh, makes a lot of sense when you're looking at him preaching to a group of people who the world around them has told they're absolutely trash. And him preaching messages such as, no, you're not trash. You were actually predestined by God to be his. You see what I'm saying? And so we've taken these ideas that were specific to groups of people and we've applied them to the broad theological spectrum and that's why it hasn't really worked necessarily. And so, uh, so anyway... Um, Augustine, I've been highly accurate about, uh, don't, I don't love Augustine, but anyway, that's all right, good dude. But I studied the life of these great witnesses, and it rekindled a fire in me. And in this, I have come to a few conclusions, which I will certainly unpack in, in, unpack in the coming days, okay? Let me just talk about four of them real quick. Number one is that the Western world, which we are in, has a very flawed philosophy and therefore theology of atonement. And we've been talking about this for a year and a half, but it has absolutely been solidified in me over this month. We have a very flawed way of thinking about and therefore teaching about atonement. I'll talk about that on another day. Number two, that much of the Western world has traded intellect for ecstasy because getting a goosebump is much easier than studying what and why you believe. So you have a ton of people living by faith, but could not tell you what the message of reconciliation means for their neighbor. So for example, we were in the mountains uh, this past week, and uh, there was a late, we were staying in this treehouse cabin thing on Airbnb. Felt super hippie. Cool. Um, it's not for me. The mountains are for me. The treehouse cabin thing with all the bugs are not for me. But anyway, uh, but it was still fun and uh, definitely not for Jordan. She's not in here right now, but, she, you know, the bug thing is not for her either. Um, or Veda, actually, you know. But anyway, so I walked down to the creek because right below where we were staying was a creek. And, uh, and I'm just honestly staring. I'm kind of in prayer, mostly in thought, you know, whatever. And I hear this voice come up behind me, scared the living daylights out of me first. But she walked up behind me, and, uh, and she said, you can use it if you want. And I said, huh? This is about 85-year-old lady. She lived next door. She had lived there for, I think, 50 years, something like that, 40, 50 years. And um, anyway, so we just started talking, and I had my dream shirt on, so she was asking about church, told her I was a pastor, you know. And, um, and anyway, and so she started talking to me about the school board election that they had the day before. And uh, which, of course, that's what, as soon as they find out you're a pastor, game over, you know. And, um, you know, well, brother, we had a school board and, and we were voting for, um, you know, so-and-so, but she didn't win. Instead, somebody got in that's pro-abortion and pro-gay rights and all this other stuff. And she's, you know, just talking about all this stuff. 
And, uh, and in that process, she also invited me to her church Sunday, which was really sweet. And she said, we're, we're King James only. We don't water it down, blah, 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 blah. And uh, we don't wear those tight jeans and, you know, all that stuff. And I was like, so essentially, I'm Satan. So, you know, anyway, that's okay. Um, but as we're talking, I, I just, I'm, I'm like, I'm having this conversation with her. And I'm not trying to prod or anything, but it's kind of more of a case study at this point for me. So I was like, uh, so when, when you spoke to this school board lady that you don't agree with, how, how did you explain that to her? Like, what, what was your reasoning for not agreeing with that stuff? Because I don't either. But, like, what, what, were the, what was the reason? And, and she said, well, you know, we didn't really get into all that. We're just living by, we're living by a biblical worldview and living in faith. And I said, I, faith, you know, that's, that's great, you know. Um, but do you know why? And had no idea. Partially because probably reading the King James didn't know what she's reading. But you know what I'm saying? Um, if you read the King James, it's not a nice, it's just a joke, just a joke. Uh, probably read Romans 8 1 and King James figured it out. But um, as we're talking, I realize, you know what we have done? Because I lived in Kentucky for 10 years. So you know what we have done is what the church has done is we have said, we don't need to think, we don't need to be smart, we need to have faith. As if faith and intellect are two different things fighting against each other. Problem is, if you go back to the early church, the only way they got to the experience was by way of knowing. Well, you don't need to think. You need to have faith. You're not going to have faith if you don't know how to think. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Brother, I just believe. Well, why do you believe? I don't know. I just believe. And the first time the enemy comes and and does something in your life that causes you to wobble a little bit, you're listen, Jesus said, if your house is not built on the rock, which is what? The word. What is the word? His teaching. Then it will fall. He didn't say, if your life isn't built on your Hillsong playlist, my Lord, you're going to fall. No, no, no. He's, if your life is not built on why you know that you believe what you believe, then the minute that comes into question, you're not going to know how to stand. So we've traded intellect for ecstasy, and you have a ton of people living by faith that could not tell you anything about why they live by faith. We've completely, listen, negated the fact. This is one of the biggest things I've said. We've completely negated the fact that your experience of someone is limited by your knowledge of them. Your experience of someone is limited by your knowledge of that person. So my experience with my wife is limited by what I know about my wife. So when we first started dating and all I knew was her name, we had a certain measure of experience. And that was, we go to dinner together. Right? But seven, no, nine years later, excuse me, almost 10 years. Nine years later, there's an experience that we share that is far and away deeper than going to dinner together. What's the difference? After nine years, I know everything about her, sometimes more than she knows about her. 
I, in fact, we did this, I don't even know how many times on vacation, where she would start to say something and I would finish her sentence verbatim how she was about to finish her sentence. Because I know how she thinks. Because I know her. And so when, we, when people get together and they start dating, do we tell them, all right, just go, go hop in the bedroom? No. We tell them to get to know each other first. Why? Shouldn't they just live by feelings? No. See, see, we don't even believe that. But we teach it in theology because we have taken our brains and we've thrown them in the garbage and then we wonder why the culture around us wants nothing to do with what we're doing. It's because the culture around us not only wants to say, well, we believe, they want to know why. And the church has said, well, you shouldn't need to know why. You should just have faith. Nope. They deserve to know why as much as you and I deserve to know why. And if what we teach is true, there should be a measure of teaching that we can teach the world as to what is true. Is that not so sketchy? If, listen, if I'm not in the church and somebody says, well, bro, I, I, don't, I don't need to give you proof. We just need to live by faith. Of course you would say that if it wasn't real. But if what we believe is real, then we've got stuff to say about what is real. If I have a fake girlfriend, there's not very much I can tell you about her except we just believe she's here. But because I have a physical wife, I can tell you everything you need to know about her. And even as I'm... See, see everything I'm saying right now Everything I'm saying in the early church wouldn't even need to be talked about. However, and this, is, this tells you how far we've gone from the early church. At, at what I'm saying right now, there's some people right now that it hits them in a really bad way. That tells you how far we've gone. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. But we're getting back. All right. We were designed to have the experience and the knowledge. And I, listen, I do not believe you can have one without the other. I do not believe that you can experience God without a knowledge of who God is and vice versa. I don't believe, believe you can experience God and not learn who He is. And I also don't believe you can't learn who He is and also experience Him. So I, for years, have told the Lord that He should ease up on the depth of where we are as a church because we have a lot of young people. For years... Since we started, Lord, I wish you'd give me easy sermons that they can tweet. You know what I mean? I wish I could teach you about your, what's that thing people say now? Um, assignment. I wish, bro, I wish I could teach you about your assignment in the globe. You know what I mean? Your, what is, what, your, uh, here we go. All right, you ready? Uh, I'll tell you. Uh, your, uh, let, me, let me think. Your storm will be your future success. Your rejection is your preparation. What's, what does that mean? You know what I'm saying? Praise God. That's amazing. Um, didn't read any verses this week, but you know. So, but that, see, see, but we, that's what we, we love that stuff. We love it because it doesn't require us to do anything up here. And that's why most, 
<laughs> That's why most of the church were the ones buying into conspiracy theories during COVID. Okay, 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 okay. So I, for years, have told the Lord he should ease up on the depth. <laughs> I'm offended, so it's fun. I realized on sabbatical that he's had us at the depth that we've been at because the depth of knowledge that we have is going to be the thing that carries us into the level of experience that we're about to have. I'll tell you more on this later. What happens when what Paul said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has comprehended what the Lord has planned for those who love him? What happens when that happens? What happens when the Lord does something that you and I and no one else has ever seen, ever heard, or ever even thought about? Do you know the implications of this? No eye has seen. That means you're not going to be able to go into Acts and say, well, Peter saw this, so I know exactly how to respond. No eye has seen. Okay? So we love these verses, but what happens when no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has comprehended actually happens? Either we have a depth of understanding about who God is that makes that fit, or we have no clue who God is. We're limited to what we read in the book, which is a great book. I love it. It's from the Lord. But we're limited to this, and when we're limited to this, all we can ever see is what eye has seen. And what ear has heard and what mind has thought about. I'm not wanting to do what Peter did. I want to do greater than what Peter did. I don't want to do what Jesus said that. All who believe in me will do the works I do. And what? Greater. That means we are called to do things that even Christ himself did not do. Not because he couldn't, but because he restrained himself to release a glory on the latter house that's greater than the glory on the former house. Right? right? Jesus could have. He had all the power on earth to walk the earth and say, poof, everyone in history healed. He, he, he had all authority to do that, but he didn't. Why? Because there is a glory that you and I are designed to walk in that Jesus restrained himself in order to release on you and I. And we're never going to walk in it if all we are limited to is what I has seen. And the only way we're going to allow ourselves the, the privilege, the grace, the dare to see what no I has seen is if we know the one releasing what no I has seen. And the only way we know is through what we are taught that leads to our experience. And that's why teaching is imperative in the church. In, six, in the 1600s, for example, if you're sitting in any church in, um, in the country, most of the churches back then, there was not a big separation of church and state. So most of the churches in around the 1600s were uh, city-run churches. So, the city, for example, the city of Columbia, which didn't exist in the 1600s, I don't believe, but maybe it did. I don't think it did. Um, but anyway, this is just an example. The city of Columbia leaders would come together, and they would say, we're going to establish a church on that corner, and this person's going to be the appointed pastor. And Columbia would have one church everybody came to as the body of the church in Columbia. Right? Then the Enlightenment period, God bless us, happened. And when that happened, there was a separation of church and state. 
And when that happened, we put God in a distant heaven. We put the goal of life going to a distant heaven because of the Greek philosopher Plato that will not let us go or we won't let go. And when that happened, there was this separation that allowed any Jim Bob anywhere to say, we're going to go, we're going to go plant a church, which is great in some senses and has destroyed us in other senses. Because if there's one church, when you get offended, there's nowhere else to go. So you have to reconcile with people. When there's a thousand churches and you get offended, you just go start your own thing and do something else. Right? Welcome to church in America. This is who we are. This is what we've created. And that's why we're so focused on escaping because we don't believe this can ever be redeemed because we haven't sat still long enough to see anything be redeemed. For this to be redeemed, it's going to require you and I to get so rooted that no measure of offense could ever sway us. Number three, that the message of total atonement, that's what I've started calling it, the message of total atonement is actually written on the heart of every human being. Let me tell you a story real quick. Y'all good? Okay. Uh, y'all haven't heard this in months, so, you know. Um, so on, uh, while we were gone a couple of weeks ago, there is a, a couple that has a son, and I'm going to tell their names or anything like that. But there's a couple who has a son, and this couple has... has been kind of, they don't live here, but they, they've been um, intrigued, let's say, by what the Lord has been doing here. Um, and the, and the, the time when things started going like this with their intrigue and us is when we started teaching over the past year and a half about the love of God, okay? It was like, I don't know if I'm in on that. That's amazing. Well, this week, I get a phone call, or a text, excuse me, a text, not a phone call. People don't call anymore the text. Um, I got a text, and uh, their son is just is in a really, really bad spot. And, uh, and in this, it was amazing to see that the message that we've been talking about over the past year and a half was exactly what they were reaching out to receive over their own son. And it hit me, they are preaching my own messages for me right now, and they didn't even agree with them. Because atonement is written on the heart of every human being, whether or not we like it. So that's the third thing I've realized. Fourth, final, and then we'll get into Luke 19. For every great theological moment in church history, there is a man, a woman, or a small group of people going against the status quo for a while, even unto death. For example, in the time of Athanasius, my favorite church father of all of them, in the time of Athanasius, a popular and spreading ideology was Arianism, which rejected the divinity of Jesus, saying that Jesus was simply created by the Father, thus rejecting the Trinity. So in the time of Athanasius, around 300 AD, in the time of Athanasius, there was a move called Arianism, which rejected Jesus's being God. They believed that Jesus was simply created by God as someone who was good. Therefore, there was no Trinity. It was just the Father, okay? That was the widespread, they, I mean, that was the widespread belief. That's what the church is taught for the most part. 
Athanasius comes in, and that's where we get the writing on the incarnation. My favorite writing, the reason he wrote that was to combat Arianism. And he writes this to say that not only was Jesus not created of the Father, Jesus is the same as the Father, fully God. Therefore, the Trinity is exactly intact, Spirit, Father, and Son, three in one, all God. Here's the thing. Athanasius fought this his entire life. He got rejected by the community. He got kicked out of the community for this. And he died while Arianism was still the widespread belief. He never saw the fruit of what he spent his whole life fighting for. But when he died, the council of church leaders got together and they made the declaration for all the the universal church at that time. They made the declaration that Arianism is heretical and that Jesus is God and that the Trinity is perichoresis. After Athanasius never saw it. So he fought for something that went against the status quo his entire life and never saw fruit from it, but the next generation did. And you and I are in here today because of his decision. If Athanasius had quit and Arianism remained the primary belief, then Christianity would have become just another Greek religion like Zeus like Hercules, like Hades, like all the, Jesus would have become just another one of those dudes. You and I would not be here today had it not been for Athanasius. You know what I'm saying? And it's, do you see the difference? It's like we, we, we'll bail on something if it gets uncomfortable. And we had, we're here today because of people saying, I'll give my life if that's what it takes, even if I don't see it. I, that's the church. The church was built, and I, I forget who, I, man, man, I wish I had the guy who, who said this. The church is built on the blood of the martyrs. One of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember who said it. That the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. Martyrs, what does that mean? Is that you and I are here today because of a group of people that were willing to go to death for what they believed. You and I will bail on what we believe if we get offended. You know, you know what I'm saying? Where's, where's the amens? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's okay. Um <clears throat> The message and the fight that Yahweh has given us is what I believe is against Augustinianism's original sin doctrine and for the gospel that, as Romans 5.18 says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. You were not born into sin, you are not separated from God, and you are not innately evil. And I just went against 99% of the church. You were not born into sin, you are not separated from God, and you are not innately evil. That is nowhere in the Bible. Neither of those. You were born into Christ, you were born at one with God, and you are innately good. We will, or I can speak, I will champion what future generations after us 
will know as original goodness. Right now, the doctrine that runs the church is original sin. In a hundred years, if I have anything to say about it, the doctrine that will run the church is the doctrine of original goodness. You don't start at Genesis 3, you start at Genesis 1. Before anything fell, it was labeled permanently as good. So, man. <laughs> all, you, all right, y'all good? Y'all good? I got, I got it. So, where did we get the doctrine of original sin from? Our brother Augustine. Bless him. So, Augustine didn't know Greek. St. Augustine did not know Greek. Okay? The, the New Testament was written in Greek. Augustine had a Latin version of the Bible. Latin and Greek, just like English and Greek, are very different languages, okay? As Augustine hits Romans 5, thank you, N.T. Wright, for what I'm about to say. It's totally stole from him. But if N.T. Wright said it, it's right. His last name is Wright, you know. So anyway, um, spelled differently, but anyway, that was a little joke. So Augustine hit Romans 5 in the Latin, and Romans 5 in the Latin has a lot harsher language towards Adam in the Latin language than the Greek does. The Greek is very ambiguous and soft toward Adam in Romans 5. The Latin wording is very harsh towards Adam in Romans 5. So as Augustine gets to in the Latin Bible, Romans 5, he sits back and has to reconcile the language about Adam in Romans 5. And from there, he formulates the doctrine of original sin. What is the doctrine of original sin? That every single human being on planet earth, past, present, and future, is born evil, innately evil, with a slide toward evil, and that only a rejection of that nature will save us. And that's Augustine's belief, and that has carried us into the West. Augustine is the father of the West. That's what he's called. Right? Here's one problem. The Jews had no doctrine of original sin. The early church had no doctrine of original sin. So we've based the message of salvation on a doctrine from someone who didn't even know the original language that the New Testament was written in. And I'm here today to tell you, the doctrine of original sin is wrong. How can you say that? Because I got Greek. <laughs> no, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, no, it, this, is, this doctrine is, a, is about original goodness. Jesus could not save the human race had it not originally been good. I'm going to prove this to you in the next coming weeks. It's taken everything in me to not prove it to you right now. God had to rearrange the entire... Everything had to be created through the Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, John 1 takes it a step further and says all things were created through the Word. Now, why would God create through the Word? He, God could create in any way He wants. It's very specific that God creates through Jesus. Think, you ever think about this? Why didn't He create through the Holy Spirit? Why didn't He Himself, the Father, create? But it was through the Son. Because the Son would be the one that brings everything back to its originally designed intention. 
How could everything be brought back to its original design unless the very one that gave it its original design brought it back? So, <laughs> oh man, Lord, 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 help me. Help me, Lord. I'm getting to Luke 19, I promise, I promise. So we celebrate Easter and we celebrate Christmas. But what the Lord, I'm going to teach you this coming up. The incarnation... Easter is the final and public finishing of salvation. But the salvation act was the incarnation. Because what is salvation? It's being made whole. Are y'all good? Is this too much? No matter. All right. Salvation is being made whole. Okay. Being made whole is being put to right. Let me ask you this. In the beginning, if I ask you what defined mankind in the beginning, what would you say? That they were sinless? Right? Or that they were made in the image and likeness of God? They were made in the image and likeness of God. What is sin? Sin is living out of step with that. So sure, they were sinless, but they were in the image and likeness. If they're in the image and likeness, that means they are one with the image and likeness. And if they're one with the image and likeness, they're one with the one that the image and likeness comes from. They start at one with God. What is the incarnation? When God becomes man. In one body, God and man resides as one. So when that baby takes its first breath in the arms of Mary, salvation begins to do its work. Because salvation is bringing you back to originality. The cross was the finishing of that which kept you from originality. The incarnation was the act that brought you back to originality. I'm going to teach this later. Okay, I could go on and I'll unpack all of this in the days ahead. However... I have a fire in my bones that is hotter and higher and brighter than ever before. And what lies ahead is going to be considered the new reformation of the West. Thus will shake the globe if we say yes to our role in it. So I've got a title for the message, and then I've only got a couple more pages. I saved the best for last. The title of today's message is You Consume What You Sow. You consume what you sow. Let me read Luke 19. Told you I was getting there. Jesus entered Jericho. That's big. Remember that. And was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way. Did y'all sing the song in, in kids, uh, VBS? Yeah. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. All right. Um, poor Zacchaeus, all we know is a wee little man. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now 
I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And he's probably saying that in response to hearing what the crowd is muttering. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today, listen to this, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Listen. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you have an NIV, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's a very, that's, there's a huge little thing there that, that they slid in there, and I called them. That is not what the original says. Caught. Yeah, that's not what the original says. It does not say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you read it like that, what does it make it sound like? Salvation is coming. The original Greek is in the past tense. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save, listen, that which was lost. There's one problem with this. Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. <laughs> Verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them. So this is all happening in the same story, a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Religious people he's talking to right now. Ten minas is related to the Ten Commandments. Okay, So he's talking about the teachers of the law, etc. Uh, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant. His master replied, Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Ten minas to ten cities. Verse 18. Then the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Listen. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I kept it, laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put, didn't you put the money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. 26, he replied, I tell you that everyone who has will be given more. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring me here and kill them in front of me. Whoo! Harsh language, right? It's a parable. So, uh, this, is, this is related to what Paul says in Galatians 6. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read it over you. And he says this. 
Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man sows, reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. There's the phrase eternal life. I taught that earlier. Verse 9. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. All right. That's Luke 19 and Galatians 6. Both of these passages are teaching the same thing from two perspectives. This is what I want to teach on today. I'm almost done. Luke 19 is talking about a quantitative thing. Galatians 6 is talking about a qualitative thing. Luke is speaking to the law of reciprocity. That's what it's called. The law of reciprocity says that when we give to God, he responds by giving us greater than what we gave. Okay, that's what the law of reciprocity means. So Luke 19 is speaking to that. They took 10 minas, they put them to work, they earned 10 more, and then they got 10 cities in response, which are greater than, way greater than 10 minas. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so that's what Luke 19 is speaking to. But Paul in Galatians 6 is speaking to the law of sowing and reaping, which says you get back what you give. The first deals with measure. The second, in Galatians 6, deals with kind or quality. Luke is saying, I need you to pay attention to this. I'm almost done, I promise. Luke is saying that when you manage what the Lord has given you well, like Zacchaeus has just done, he will give you more to manage well. Paul is saying when you manage why God has given to you well, he will give you more of the substance that you stewarded with, which is, in this case, good. So Luke is teaching or writing about a law that when you give, more will be given to you. Paul is writing about when you sow in a certain quality, it is through that very quality that you will receive back from God. So, Another way of saying this is, is elsewhere when it says, um, the measure that you use, it shall be measured unto you. It's not saying if you give 10%, God will give 10%. It's saying if you give with a heart that says, I'm going to give all, God's going to give all back. And God's all trumps your all every time. Okay. So why am I teaching this? Because in order to operate in either of those laws, it requires us to first be given authority to do so. For us, that example has been laid out over the last year and a half. If salvation is something that happens when you do something, the whole purpose of salvation has to be heaven. Because this life is all about attaining authority or that salvation over your life, and then the next life will be about leveraging or living in that salvation. And that's why we believe everyone is sinners, the cross was exclusively for sin, and that the goal of life is to fly away to heaven. Okay? Are y'all good? But if salvation was attained and imputed to mankind in the incarnation, teaching coming soon, then you and I start with that authority, 
never having to attain it because salvation was always his to win and give, not ours to attain. That was major. Then this life here and now is about leveraging and living in salvation that we were born into, original goodness. And heaven is simply the prophetic blueprint for the creation. That's why in Luke 19, it says this. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. If something was lost, what does that mean? It's no longer lost. If salvation has come to the house before anything has happened at the cross, what does that mean? That wholeness is found in the incarnation. This is what the Lord is really taking us. That we have made salvation a cross issue, and the cross is extremely important, but salvation is an incarnation issue. The cross is the fulfillment and the finishing act of what takes place in the incarnation. So the cross is extremely important. It is finished. Cross is extremely important. But the incarnation is what you and I have not really thought that much about in our lives as people who follow Jesus. If we're being honest, at Christmas, sure, the Word became flesh. You will have a baby. He will be the Son of the Most High God. At Christmas, we think that, right? The rest of the year... We don't really think about the incarnation. We think a lot about the cross, which we should, not saying we shouldn't. But the incar- we, if we could find our salvation in the incarnation, then the cross would actually have its rightful meaning in our lives as well. We've made the cross something it wasn't designed to be because we don't know what the incarnation was designed to be. So we'll say that the cross was God killing his son to forgive us of our sins because he can't forgive unless he kills. How do you know that? Brother, the Old Testament. Origen's got some amazing teaching about the Old Testament that I'm going to release someday soon. Not today. But, But if the incarnation was God's announcement of what he thinks about sin, then the cross was where we punched every ounce of sin's power into Jesus so that he could finish it once and for all. If the incarnation is us about being brought back to rights, then the thing which knocked us out of being right is put to death on the cross. Can, are y'all, can I help? Please help me, Okay. The incarnation is you being brought back to your original design. The cross is about that which knocked you out of your original design being put to death once and for all. He dealt with death on the cross. He dealt with identity in the incarnation. You were knocked out of your identity by way of death. So he brought you back to the beginning and then he took an axe to the tree of knowledge of good and evil on the cross and said, never again, it's finished. 
Well, brother, I don't know about that. That's because we've been taught 2020 Western theology. All right. <clears throat> the only in our theory of atonement, and I say our as in our, only in our theory of atonement do either Luke 19 or Galatians 6 even work. You cannot sow what you don't have or manage what you haven't been fully given. So some might argue that both of those take place post-humans attaining salvation or, you know, repeating a prayer. But in Luke 19, the servants were given the ten minas. They did not earn them or even attain them by something they did. I need you, I need you to focus right here. Okay? Some people might say, well, Luke 19 and Galatians 6 is what happens after you repeat a prayer. There's one problem with that. In Luke 19, it was the king that gave the minus to the people that, by the way, didn't even want them. They didn't earn them. He gave them to them when they didn't even want it. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Okay? So, Luke 19, the servants were given the ten minas. They didn't even earn them. And in Galatians 6, Paul is speaking to life here and now and at no point is speaking about the afterlife, though, of course, that is a byproduct. So how do you have authority to sow to the flesh or the spirit unless you've already been given that authority to do so? That's huge scholarship stuff. You don't have to worry about it if it doesn't make sense. But if, if, if I'm going to sow to the flesh or I'm going to sow to the Spirit. Uh, all right, let me help you here, too. We have made the flesh and the Spirit Plato, that you have a physical body, and then you have a ghost inside of you, and those two things are fighting against each other. That's not, that's not what the flesh and Spirit... Flesh is sarks, which is human nature. Spirit is what illuminates your human nature. So what Paul is saying is you could sow from the outside in, or you could sow from the inside out. He's not talking about two different things. What he's saying is essentially, you could either allow the culture around you to dictate how you live your life, and that leads to you being destructive. Or you could let Yahweh determine how you live your life in the spirit, and by that, you live God life or eternal life, okay? So he's not talking about two separate things. There isn't the flesh and the spirit, and they're fighting against each other. Your flesh and the spirit are the same. It's all an issue of what defines the other, right? So I don't go sleep around with people, not because it's something my flesh is craving and I'm dying. No, it's because my interior world is telling my exterior wants what they're going to do rather than my exterior wants telling my spirit what to do, telling that which enlightens my life what to do. That's going to take years for us to undo just that. Because when I say flesh and spirit, immediately you think two different things. Okay. <clears throat> so how do you have the authority? I'm, I'm almost done. Actually, uh, Isaiah, could you hop up here on the keys? Thanks. How do you sow to the spirit or the flesh, now that I've explained what that is, unless you already have the authority to sow to the spirit or the flesh? So, so what, what Luke 19 and Galatians 6 is speaking to is how we steward what we've been given, not how we attain what we don't have. It's not 
if you do all the right things, then you'll gain salvation because of it. It's because salvation has been imputed to you by way of Jesus, because of that, how are you going to steward that reality? So everything, your works matter. They just don't matter in the way that we've been told they matter. What you do absolutely matters because what you do determines how you live in what you are. It does not determine what you are, but it does determine how much you live in what you are. So if you are in Christ, but you are living your life like you don't have a clue who you are, then suddenly you're living destructive. Doesn't change the fact that you're in Christ. It changes the fact that you're living like you're a slave when you're a king. You see what I'm saying? This is all review stuff. But what Jesus is introducing, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And then he goes into a parable about stewarding what's been given to you. Do you see this? So everything that we do is a stewardship issue. And if we will steward what we have been given effectively, we'll find ourselves governing the globe in the kingdom. Therefore, what we experience in the kingdom invading our church, our lives, and our city is directly a result of how we manage and sow what has been given to us, which is our new old gospel. Most of managing, listen, and sowing has to do with what you're willing to first lay down. Most of managing and stewarding and sowing first has to do with what you're willing to lay down. Because like I said earlier, you can't pick up stuff if your hands are full with the wrong stuff. So it has to do first with what you're willing to lay down, and then it has to do with what you're willing to pick up. So I'm just, money. I said this earlier. I can, brother, I can't afford to tithe. But you can afford Starbucks. You know, you know what I'm saying? Right? It's all an issue of what you're willing to lay down in order to pick up the right thing. Let me give you another example when it comes to tithing, because we don't talk about tithing a lot. So, I, I mean, I could, I could talk about this. There's also a difference in what you give after and what you give before. So when I was in high school and college, when I was broke, I used to tithe after I paid all my bills and got all my food and got all the stuff I needed, just in case I needed that money. Now... Jordan and I are absolutely not wealthy in a materialistic sense. We are blessed, no doubt. However, we make the decision of what we're giving to God first, and then whatever is left after that, that's what Wells Fargo gets. Bring the first fruits. 
The reason in the Old Testament the Israelites have to be commanded to bring the first fruits is because they didn't know who they were. Because if they did know who they were, they wouldn't have to be told to bring the best of what they had. Our church, listen, let me just, our church, we could afford to pay cash for a building if everybody that called this home actually tithed 10%. I'm not even talking about above and beyond. We could hire staff. We, I mean, you know what I'm saying? We could do everything that the Lord has put on us is waiting for people to be faithful enough in order to see those things come to pass. God partners with his church. He doesn't overlord it. The Spirit wants to explode in this place if we're willing to let the Spirit explode in this place. Right? The Lord wants to use your finances in a way that is absolutely blessed if you'll give him the doorway to do so. And that doorway is called the tithe. And you don't tithe to the Salvation Army. That's an amazing, I'm glad people, ble- you don't tithe to a scholarship fund. Those are great. The tithe goes to the house. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if I had a dollar for every time over the years people said, well, bro, I give, I give my tithe to, you know, Boys and Girls Club. You, you should give money to the boys, give money to them. That's not your tithe. You know what I'm saying? So, um, but it's all about what you're willing to lay down, what you're willing to pick up. Listen, what about jobs? What about where you live? What about your relationships? There's a lot of single people in the room. So let me just, there's a lot of you that are on fire with the Lord. And the thing I've seen, Lord, Lord, over the past five years, somebody will be on fire for the Lord. They'll be here. They'll be involved. They'll be everything. They'll be doing it. And then they'll get in a relationship and they'll slowly back away until the point where they're not even here anymore. So here's a, here's a good father, little fatherly advice I'll give Veda when she's old enough, when she's 50. Um, if your relationship pulls you further away from the church and from the Lord, it's the wrong relationship for you. <laughs> well, he just loves the Lord. Then he will bring you to church. Let me give you a part B to this. <laughs> While I've just offended everybody today. If you get in a relationship that causes you to settle for a lesser measure of church, even if you're present, it's the wrong relationship for you. It's a lie. What about your time? If you got on your phone, and, and again, this isn't about what earns your identity. This is about what are you doing with your identity? You see what I'm saying? Your time. How are you on Facebook and Instagram more than you are with the Lord? Are are you giving your time to events and programs and things that cause you to have to lay down the things of the Lord in order to do them? That's horrible stewardship of your time, including ministry. I can be doing ministry day in and day out and be laying down my relationship with the Lord in the process of doing ministry. So you see what I'm saying? Your involvement. Some, Some of you have stayed on the fringes long enough. It's time to step in. Some of you have stayed on the fringes for years, for months, 
for years, it's time to step in and pick up what you were designed to pick up. Your pro- I hate priorities, but if we're going to do the priority thing in our culture, your priorities. What's most important to you? Because people will go around and say, brother, I'm all about the one thing, and they're really all about 12 things, and none of them are actually the right one thing. You know what I mean? You can say all you want. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit, not by what it says, by its fruit. So what are your priorities? How, how is your, well, I'm on, uh, how's your serving? Like, there's a lot of you. We need what the Lord has put in you in this house. We need that. And that has been put aside because you don't want to take one more step in. We, like, we need that. What about your studying? Do you just open the Bible, read the verse, or do you open your app and read the verse of the day? Like, I got mine in. Lord, thank you. Thank you for another day. Amen. Move on to work. Listen, you'll be accepted. You'll be in Christ. You'll float away to heaven. Well, you won't float, but you know. You know what I'm saying? But that, we're beyond that. We're way beyond that. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are one with the Messiah. You are the bride of God. And the Israelites squandered that. We will not squander that. The Israelites said, we want rules. I don't want rules. I want covenant. I want him to stare at me so long that every piece on the inside of me that doesn't look like him begins to melt. Listen, I'm almost done. What about community? Because it's easy in our culture to stay arm's length with the church. I'm here, but are, are you here? What about Tuesdays? Tuesdays are, I think, the most important thing we do. Man, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'll catch it next time. Athanasius was tired too when he was on the run. Thank God he didn't stop. I'm tired. Wait till you have a kid. <clears throat> what about, like, listen, when's the last time any of us invited anybody to come to church? You know what I'm saying? Like, we used to do that in the day because we didn't want to evangelize to anybody. We didn't want to tell anybody about Jesus. So we invited them to church so the pastor could tell them about Jesus. We're beyond that. But once you tell them about Jesus, do they know that there is a place that will tell them exactly who they are without judging them by what they have done? Because most people in our city don't know that. What, last two. What about evangelizing? When's the last time you just told somebody about Jesus? You know what I mean? Like, when is the last? I tell people about Jordan all the time because I love Jordan. She is awesome. You know what I'm saying? So I, tell, I talk about Jordan, and I talk about Veda all the time, all the time, you know? And if you get around me long enough, I'll talk your ear off about Jesus too. You know what I'm saying? But it's like, but man, it's not like, all right, I led three people to the Lord. I don't care if you lead one person to the Lord the rest of your life. That's not what I'm talking about. If he's lifted up, he'll draw everybody unto him himself. You know what I'm saying? You don't got to tell people the five different rules of how to be saved or give them a gospel. Please don't give them a gospel track. I discourage you to do that. I'd rather you just leave them alone. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and then here's the last one. Do you and I have a willingness to be fathered? Like, do you and I have a willingness to say, 
if I'm going to be all that I'm going to be, I've got to realize that the Lord gave gifts to the church. And those gifts are pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. And he gave those to the church so that the church would come into the full and perfect knowledge of the Son of God. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to do a baby dedication for little old Judah. Well, not little anymore. He's grown so much, it's not even funny. But, um, but before we do that, I'm going to pray. I want you to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. I have talked about a lot today, okay? This would be about five different weeks of college courses in one day. Um, that's okay, though because I think we can handle it. But I just want to ask you this. Is there anybody in the room that you would say, there is absolutely some stuff I need to lay down? Anybody in the room? Just raise your hand. It could be money. It could be inconsistency with giving. It could be what you do with your time. It could be how not involved you've been with the church. It could be how not involved you've been with community. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. But if there's something you feel like you need to lay down, I want you to raise your hand. Nobody's looking, but I want you to raise your hand as an act unto the Lord that says, this day I will choose who I will serve. Me and my house will serve the Lord. Anybody, raise your hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome, 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 awesome. You can put your hands down. Let me pray. Y'all pray with me. Lord, I pray right now in this moment, there are some things stirring in the room that is everything that I used to lay awake at night and still lay awake at night and dream about. And that is us having the freedom to go into territories in the kingdom that no one has ever been. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I chose the one less traveled by and that's me. I want you to hear that. I don't even know if Robert, Robert Frost knew anything about Jesus, but this is absolutely of the Lord. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I chose the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Some of you, if not all of you in the room, are standing at the crossroads where the roads diverge and there's one path that everybody else goes down. Your culture tells you that it's all about your career. It's all about what you do for a living. It's all about how many degrees you get in order to do the thing that everybody thinks you should do for a living. It's all about how much money you make. It's all about how many kids you have. It's all about security and safety and retirement. You don't need to do that thing that you dream about because that's not going to make you any money. You need to get you in a, into a good business instead. And I'm here to tell you, two roads diverge in a wood. And you choosing the one that no one else travels by is going to make all the difference. And that's what we're called to lay down. Every hand that was raised was just about everybody. Every hand that was raised represents something that we need to lay down in order to take up a life that no eye has actually seen. So I pray over this group of people. I pray over the ones that are out of town today. 
Um, Lord, I pray over anybody watching this online from all over the state, country, wherever they're watching this from and listening to this later. I pray that what you're doing in the globe right now that I believe is starting in Colombia and a few other predominant places in America and across the globe, what you're doing is you're bringing us back to the path. You're taking us by the hand and leading us off the broad way and taking us to the narrow one. pray that this week, every time we open the Bible, every time we pray, every time we look at somebody in the eyes and see you in them, even when they can't see you in themselves, in themselves, I pray that every single one of those moments that you would spark something on the inside of us that says, I am the beloved of God. I was when I was born. I was when I was doing that thing that I'm um, ashamed of. I was when I was running from you. I was when I was hiding from you. I was when I thought I was absolutely worthless. I was when everybody else around me told me I was absolutely worthless. I was the beloved of God and that has never changed one day in my life. Therefore, nothing is impossible for us. So Yahweh, we honor you and love you in this place. I'm so thankful to be back with this family. I feel like I can breathe like I haven't breathed in a while. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.